So when you read through the Bible, it's pretty hard to deny that there's something pretty special about uh, Israel and God's plan for it. Even former President John F. Kennedy said this, how amazing Israel and the Jewish people have endured. He says, Israel was not created in order to disappear. Israel will endure and flourish. Kennedy makes this point with evidence because Israel's lasted a long time. The Jewish people have lasted when other ancient cultures have disappeared. Let me prove it to you. How many of you bumped into a Canaanite recently? And then uh, like, oh, yeah, yeah how's, how's it going? What about an Edomite? You guys bump into an Edomite at all recently? No, I don't think so. There's, and the reason why you've not bumped into Jared the Edomite is because ancient cultures like Edom and Canaan no longer continue today. But Israel... The Jewish people have endured until this day, both in terms of their culture, bloodlines, and identity. And you would expect this, of course, because Jesus and the apostles were all themselves Jewish. Jesus, I hate to put it to you, he, he was not a white guy with blonde hair and blue eyes with rainbow sandals. He didn't look like a Calvary Chapel worship leader from California who loves to surf and likes to have long walks on the beach. I'm not talking about you, Johnny, don't worry. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. Jesus was a first century Jewish man. He was raised in first century Israel. And, you know, I, I went to Biola University. I'm a Biola grad. And I remember, like, the professors who were New Testament scholars were so deeply offended, many, many of them, by the picture of Jesus as a white guy holding a Bible. You know, that's not what Jesus looks like. Jesus was a Jewish man. And so God chose, it's very significant, God chose to take on human flesh in the person of Christ. He chose to take on an ethically, ethnically Jewish human nature. And this all makes sense when you look at God's word and what they say, what, what God's word says about the Old Testament, what, what, it, what it says about Israel, the promises to Israel, what it, what it speaks about God's people Israel in the Old Testament. Look at Genesis 12, 2 through 3, just to see these promises. And I will make you a great nation, talking to Abraham, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, in Abraham, is seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's interesting, Paul in Galatians chapter 3 says that blessing is salvation. That blessing is justification by faith alone. By receiving Christ, we receive his righteous status and the forgiveness of all of our sins. That's what the blessing is here, Paul says in Galatians 3. And the promise is made to Isaac as well, the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, it says in uh, Genesis 22, 17 through 18. I will surely bless you and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. How many stars are in the heaven? You can't even count them. And it says, and as a sand that is in the seashore. Good luck counting that. I mean, it's just, it's, it's incomprehensible. That's how numerous they will be. And your offspring shall possess the gate of your enemies. Enemies, gates, the last defensive maneuver they have. And Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Interesting connection there. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. All the nations, not some of the nations, all the, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is a promise to Abraham, his descendants, those who had faith in Christ. So as you read these passages, it becomes pretty clear there is something very spiritually special and significant about Israel, about their future. And, but what happens here in the book of Romans, there's some confusion here. 
is that when Paul was pitting Romans, many in the church were saying, yeah, well, a lot of the Jews have just rejected Jesus as their Messiah. So as God's promises to Israel expired, is, is there no more promises to Israel because they have rejected Jesus, the Jewish Messiah? And Paul's point in here is no. He will not ultimately and finally reject his people. He will not reject his people as he says who he has foreknown, foreloved. He will not reject them at all. And so we're going to see how that works out in God's plan in history, how this cashes out. In Romans 11, 7 through 10, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? And the elect obtained it, those chosen obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor and eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their tables become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend back their backs forever. So Paul is talking about those who have received, and received Christ's mercy and those were the God's chosen in Israel at the time and they have received the Messiah. But those, many of them were hardened until that day. Now when it speaks of hardening here, I want to be clear, God, God isn't saying, okay, God makes people bad. Like God is like, you know, making them you know, puppets that are bad. No, what this means by hardening here, and Paul kind of alludes to this in Romans 1 when he says that he gives people up to their sin so God is basically someone who's chosen to be bad and God is giving them up to their sinful decision, confirming them in their badness. I love the way that New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner kind of puts this phenomenon because when you read this, you're like, ooh, this is kind of tough. But when you read it in context, I love the way he puts it here. The concept of hardening is difficult, undoubtedly. But Paul doesn't think such hardening exempts Israel from responsibility. Certainly, he doesn't believe that they are mere puppets or robots. Probably the idea is that God hardened those who were already sinners, so this is judicial hardening. Same concept from Romans chapter 1, God gives them up to their sinful lusts and desires because they were already rebelling against God in the first place. God kind of uh, confirms them in what they were already doing. And so that's what he was saying about the first century Jewish people who had rejected Christ, many of them, not all of them. Again, 12 apostles, they were Jewish. Many people became um, Christian and trusted in, in Christ. They were Jewish Christians. Paul continues to write in Romans 11, 11. So I ask, did they stumble? Did Israel stumble? So in order that they may fall, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So their fall and rejection of Christ was not for no reason. God always has a reason for everything that happens in our lives. It's not like God's like, oh, you know, it's just all arbitrary. There's no point to any of this. No, there's always a reason in God's plan as to why something happens. And so God's plan includes their current unbelief and their reason for their current unbelief in part, this is not a complete explanation, but in part is their current unbelief is so that Paul and the apostles uh, can focus on the Gentile church. You see this in the book of Acts, right? Paul preaches to the, to some, the Jews in the synagogue. They are hardened because we're going to now preach to the Gentiles. And so this is how it works out is that, okay, the Gentiles are converted through the preaching of the gospel. The, the Jewish people get jealous and so they will then hear the gospel and be saved. That's kind of the reality that Paul is outlining here. Paul is uh, not saying that God allows them to fall for no good reason. There's a reason for everything. 
And so this is what he continues to repeat throughout Romans 11, Romans 11, 12. Now, if their trespass, their rejection of Christ, means riches for the world, riches for the Gentiles, and if their failure, notice it says riches, not like a few things, riches. And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So what Paul is saying here is, yeah, Israel's rejection of Christ means that, that tons of people are going to get saved, and then that will increase even more so once they are saved. Once the Jews are fully saved, the Israelites are fully saved, then even more people will come to Christ. Look, look what it says. Now, tr their trespasses means riches for the world, and their failure means riches for the Gentiles. So it, but their rejection means all of these Gentiles are saved. How much more will their full inclusion mean? How much more will... Uh, Will, will Gentiles get saved after Israel is saved? What is really interesting here is a Greek word that Paul is using here for he talks about, what, you know, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Full inclusion, the Greek word he uses for fullness or full inclusion is the Greek word pleroma. And that does mean fullness. It means tons and tons. It means an abundance. It means, in Greek, an overwhelming amount. And Paul actually uses this word pleroma to be synonymous with all. We're going to see that as we look through Romans, that pleroma or fullness is a synonymous for all. It means tons of people. So when the majority of the Gentiles are blessed by these riches of salvation, tons and tons of Jewish people are going to be saved, and then more Gentiles are going to be saved. It's amazing. And Paul says later on in verse 26, he says, all Israel will be saved. This is, this is incredible news, what God's word has to say here. Romans 11, 13 through 14. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles in so much then as I'm apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order to make my fellow Jews jealous. That's kind of interesting, making the Jews jealous and thus save some. So even in his current ministry, he is seeing this happening. And you might say, well, why, how does the Jews getting jealous, how does that help them come to salvation? Well, Again, God had been working in Israel the, the, in the Old Testament through the Jews primarily, and that's what he's been working through is the Jewish nation. God had been working in that nation, and so now they're seeing God working in the Gentiles, and they're thinking to themselves, wait, God was always working with us. Why is he not working with the Gentiles? And they're like, well, maybe there's something to this, and they believe in Christ, and they look at what God is doing with the Gentiles. They, they get jealous and say, well, I've got to look into this, Jesus. I've got to look at this gospel. I've got to look into this. And, so, and then they receive, God uses that for them to receive Christ as their Messiah. Now, as you read this, you say, well, just how many Gentiles will be saved? Well, what we see in the next verse, he calls the Gentile salvation that's leading up to, he calls it a reconciliation of the world. Those are pretty big cosmic language right there. Look at Romans eleven fifteen. He says, For if their rejection, the Jewish rejection, they rejected Christ, means reconciliation of the world, reconciliation of the Gentiles, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So every time the Bible uses the word reconciliation with regard to God and salvation, it means that we are alienated from God because of our sin and our rebellion, and we are reconciled to God by faith in Jesus Christ. This is what reconciliation means here. It means salvation, getting right with God. And here it says, interestingly enough, that that's going to happen to the world. There'll be a reconciliation of the, the world here. 
Now you're like, what does that word world mean? Well, I mean, everybody knows John 3.16. It's in baseball games, football games, people hold it up. I mean, it's a very common verse. But the word for world here is cosmos. And that is, that's what, that is what is used in John 3.16, a very popular verse. I'll read this for you. For God so loved the world, cosmos same word that's used here, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Amazing. So most people understand these world passages to include tons of people, not just a few people here and there, like worlds like only a few people, you know, and there's some Christians who believe that God is only going to save a few select people, just a little bit of people, and then everybody else is going to hell. But the problem is, this is pretty obvious that God loves the world. He has a reconciliation plan for the world. And you read this in God's word. And Paul's point here is larger. If the Jews rejecting Christ means salvation for the Gentiles, then the Jews finally being saved will end with bringing the biggest blessing ever. And that blessing kind of leads to a chain reaction, right? The Gentiles receive salvation. The Jews get jealous and are saved. And then that brings even more blessings of Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Romans eleven sixteen through 18, it says, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. That is referring to Christ there. Uh, the root is Christ in his, in his covenant with his people. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now sharing in the nourishment of the olive tree... <coughs> Do, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are a member, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So Paul is talking about here the Jewish people being a part of the covenant, the people of God, and uh, being set apart, being holy. And the people of God and the covenant are holy because Christ himself is holy. Holy means set apart. It means being used for a specific purpose. And so, and it's, it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody in this, this tree illustration is saved. Uh, holiness is used for children in 1 Corinthians 7. They're part of the covenant. They are holy. They are set apart. They are used for a specific person, a purpose. It doesn't mean they're necessarily saved. And so what Paul is saying here is that Jewish people are part of the covenant. And due to their rebellion and rejection of Christ, they are broken off. And the Gentiles, because they're broken off, the Gentiles are now engrafted in. And so Paul uses this real-life illustration here of, of olive tree. You can actually do this break off a branch of an olive tree that's not producing fruit and graft it in. It takes a lot of work. I mean, goodness gracious. And you, and you, you tie in that, this wild olive shoot, and it can grow and actually produce olives. It's a real thing. And so the Gentiles could be engrafted in that way. Now, you notice there's one tree here. There's one olive tree representing the people of God. That means that there's one covenant of grace. There's one people. People of God. There's not, there's not two, two trees here. There's not two peoples of God. There's not two covenants. This is the one people of God, the church, here. And it's not like you have a Gentile tree over here and a Jewish tree over here. They're just two separate things. No, they are a part of the covenant. They are part of the church by faith in Jesus Christ. You don't have two separate trees. You have one unifying tree, one plan that God has for his people. And that includes both Jews and Gentiles together in this church that's expressed here. You see this more in Romans eleven nineteen 19 through 24. 
then you will say, branches were broken off so that, he might, so that I might be engrafted in. It's referring to the Gentiles. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. So branches are broken off due to their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, those who have left the faith the, as, as a generational group. But God's kindness to you, to the Gentiles, provided you continue in his kindness. God's warning them not to become complacent here with their family and with their spiritual lives. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if you do not, even even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. They're grafted in by by faith. For God has a power to graft them in again. Just kind of anticipating the Israelite conversion here. For if you were cut off from what by nature is a wild olive tree and grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated oil tr uh, olive tree, olive oil, I'm thinking about that, olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So Paul says here, hey, you Gentiles, don't get arrogant. You guys don't get cocky here. Because the Jewish people, they're the natural branches. They're, the, they're part of the original tree. And they were the first ones to be part of God's covenant, His people. They were the first people of God. So it would be easy peasy just to graft them back in. No problem. So you better not act arrogantly, complacent, and unbelieving. Arrogance is just totally contrary to the sense of faith. If people live an arrogant, prideful lifestyle, that's a sign that they don't know the grace of Jesus. So he's saying, don't act like an unbeliever. If you are acting like an unbeliever, you, you should be concerned. You should be afraid. Now, uh, what... what what Paul says here is that Christians, or, or people take it to be this, that, that people are, are broken off due to their unbelief. That's what it says. And people hear this and they think, oh boy, well that means I can lose my salvation then. Because you're broken off, you, you lost something, you were connected, and you're snapped off, so I better be careful or else God's going to cut me down. I'm just like a meat on a shopping block. He's going to cut me down. I can think of that Johnny Cash song. God's going to cut you down. He's just going to cut you off that, off that tree. You're in, you're in big trouble. So you're, you can lose your salvation. So if you mess up too much, you're cut off kind of thing. Well, that's, that's not what, what Paul is saying here. And we know he can't be saying that here because he has led up to this entire chapter by saying Christians, those who trust in Jesus, if you have a sincere and true faith in Jesus, you, nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus. Nothing can separate you from his salvation. Nothing can separate you from his love and mercy and grace and acceptance if you trust in him. This is what he has said previously in this very same book, Romans uh, 8, 37-39. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So nothing in all creation can separate you from the saving love of Jesus Christ, including yourself. So, according to Paul, Christians cannot lose their salvation. So, what's Paul doing here? Is Paul contradicting himself? I would say not even close. It helps to remember two things fundamental about this passage. Two things. This passage is not emphasizing or focusing in on individuals. 
It's talking about large groups of people. Corporate entities, Jews, Gentiles. And second, the branches being broken off is not describing people being broken off from salvation, but rather it's, it's the covenant. It's from the church. It's from the people of God that they're being broken off from. And I think of a smallest, just to give you an example of how this would happen without someone losing their salvation, you think of the smallest, you know, group or unit we have as a family, right? So you have a family, you know, you've got godly, you know, Christian parents and, you know, they do, they do a pretty decent job raising their kids, but their kids, their, their children don't do a, they, they're kind of lukewarm. They're still Christian, but they're just not, they're, they're not as passionate as their parents were. They get complacent. They're not, they're not on top of raising their, their children in a godly home. So their children actually just eventually just, just drop off. They never, they never actually continue in the church. And then they have children, and you know, you know, three or four generations down. And so that family, that family line, that generational line then is cut off. But no, one, no individuals lost their salvation. So yeah, corporate uh, groups, families, they, they can be cut off. Generations and groups can be cut off from God's covenant uh, because because of generational uh, people leaving the faith and being complacent, not being on top of the spiritual welfare of their children. People get smug and arrogant and they think, oh, you know, I'm from a Christian family. It's all good. I don't need to worry about anything. You know, uh, you know, my, my, my dad was a pastor. He was a pastor and back and back and back it goes, you know, or my dad was an evangelist or a missionary. And so I'm a missionary kid, so I'm good to go. I can kind of be complacent. And he's like, Paul's saying is no, just because you have a family with a spiritual you know, pedigree does not mean that you can be complacent, lukewarm. You need to be, be vigilant in raising your children and their, you have to care for their souls in knowing Jesus and discipling them in the church with God's word. You cannot be complacent about this. Otherwise, if you are, then, then eventually generationally your descendants will be cut off from God's covenant, cut off from the people of God. Romans eleven twenty five. it says, Lest you be wise in your own sights, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. There is a hardening. He's recognizing that, but he's going to explain what's going on. That hardening will continue until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So there is a, a partial hardening on Israel right now. And uh, the Gentiles coming in here refers to them being saved. So the Gentiles coming in is just another way of saying that they will be saved. And so when, when, when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, that partial hardening will be lifted. It'll be lifted. Now, what does Paul mean by this phrase, the fullness of the Gentiles? What's that going to look like? Because, you know, you want to know, hey, what point is Israel going to be saved? Because it doesn't look that way right now, right? I mean, now there's more, statistically, there's more Christians in Israel than there was when it first started. But, I mean, in terms of the state. But, I mean, but right now you look around, okay, what is this, when is this going to take place? What does fullness mean? And what's interesting is the exact same Greek word that was used, because the Bible was written in Koine Greek, that was used fullness previously of the Jewish conversion, pleroma, which means tons and tons. And Paul means this word to be an overabundance, overflowing, huge, massive amount. So when a huge, massive amount of Gentiles come in to be saved, at that stage in human history, all, we're going to see all Israel is going to be saved. There's going to be a, that hardening is going to be lifted. And, and obviously, you look around, I mean, Christianity is the world's largest religion right now. 
uh, but it's not, I mean, it's, it's, not a, it's not a majority. It's not a massive amount. It is still a large world, world religion, but it's not, it's not even close to, you know, where it needs to be to have this massive amount, this overflowing amount of Gentiles coming to salvation. And the cool thing is, is he does confirm to us what happens here. Uh, to Israel in the next verse. But I want to read first kind of like what Jesus says about the gradual growth of the kingdom because Jesus describes that the kingdom of God starts off very small as it did in the first century. There were a lot of Gentiles coming to faith in Christ, but it still started off very small. And Jesus is going to describe how it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So meaning like... Paul is not thinking here in snappy terms, like all of a sudden all the Gentiles are saved and then the, you know, the, the Jewish people will say, be saved. No, what, what, what Paul is envisioning, what the Bible teaches, is this is a slow and steady growth. Jesus says in Matthew uh, 13, 31 through 32, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in this field. It is the smallest of all the seeds. Starts off very small, very tiny. But when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants. Not some of the garden plants, all of them. And becomes a tree. So the birds of the air come make its nest and in its branches. So, yeah, Jesus says it's not, it's not an instantaneous thing. I mean, if you try to sit around and watch a tree grow, like, that's really boring. Like, I don't know anybody who spends their time that way, like watching a tree grow. Like, I mean, even if you check on it every day, it's like, do something else with your life. You know, it's, it's a slow thing. It's, you don't, I mean, you don't wake up and say, okay, now Christianity is growing and is, the Jewish people are safe. It's a slow, steady, progressive thing. Um, and so it, you know, may not even happen over our, our lifetimes. We may be in the early church still. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. So over a long period of time, you see the church growing. And I love the way that Christian philosopher and theologian William Lane Craig actually charts the growth of the Christian tree. He charts the growth. I love this. He summarizes kind of the whole sweep of, of human history pretty well. He says, in the 25 years from 1975 to 2000, the... Number of evangelicals in the third world grew from 68 million to 300 million. Wow, that's, that's pretty snappy right there. That's an increase of 6.7% annually, well over twice the rate of population growth. Perhaps all the statistics I've shared thus can be summarized up by the remarkable figures released by Ralph Winter in the chart, The Diminishing Task. He plots the number of evangelical Christians... Evangelicals. Now, this is, that's, a, that's a very specific category there. He's not including other categories of what people would call, but evangelical Christians per non-Christians in the world. These figures do not include under either category people who are just nominal Christians. In the year 100, he charts it now, for there were 360 non-Christians for every evangelical Christian. By the year 1,000, there were 220 non-Christians for every evangelical. By the year 1900, there were 27 non-Christians per evangelical. See the pattern here? By the 1950, the number had shrunk to 21 non-Christians per evangelical Christians. And in the year 2000, there were seven non-Christians for every evangelical believer in the world even if you add in all the nominal Christians as well as targets for evangelism, that still means there are only about nine unbelievers to be evangelized for every believer. Do you believe in the possibility of world evangelization? I do, and so do I. 
That's just not Christian propaganda. Like you're like, oh, you're getting it from William Lane Craig. He's a Christian, not to be trusted, some people would say. Well, you know, you just got to Google this. Just Google it, like seriously. Just, and I'm, I'm going to be kind of risque here, and I'm going to quote, like, you know, probably a pretty secular, not respected source. So it's kind of, kind of a lose-lose situation when you think about it. But anyways, Wikipedia, okay, says, you know, this is, this is, this is what we're going here. This is, we're, low, we're lowering the bar here at Corner Canyon. According to 2015 Pew Research Study, by 2050, the Christian population expected to be 2.9 billion. According to a 2017 Pew Research Survey, by 2060, Christians will remain the world's largest religion. The number of Christians will reach 3.05 billion, or 31.8%. So, the fullness of the Gentiles, the massive abundance, it's kind of, it's kind of getting there. It's, it's making its way for that hardness to be lifted on Israel. And in the next verse, Paul describes the glorious good news, the bright and beautiful future for Israel, it's overwhelming, it's so amazing. Romans eleven twenty five to 27 Lest you be wise in your own sights, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. I want to say that again in case you missed it. All Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them and I will take away their sins. He will forgive their sins. Now, there are people who would say that this refers to spiritual Israel, referring to the church and the Gentiles. But the problem is this view is, goes against the general flow of the text with the Jew and Gentile distinctions. This view is not widely held by scholars. I mean, Christians hold it, and people can disagree with me. That's fine. Uh, Christians are free to disagree here, especially at Corner Canyon Church. But I, I say this to say, the vast majority of scholars, like the bulk of them, would say that this, holds, the, the, this text is teaching here this is referring to a massive conversion of ethnic Israel at some point in the future. But as many scholars have pointed out, all does not mean here every single Jewish person in the future, but an overwhelming number of, uh, of Jewish people, just like there will be an overwhelming number of Gentiles that are saved in this text. This is how a New Testament scholar, Douglas Moo, kind of He's a well-respected commentator. He kind of summarizes scholarship where it's at right now. A few scholars have insisted that this must indicate the salvation of every single Jew. It's in all Israel. As the Old Testament Jewish sources demonstrate, has corporate significance. All Israel has corporate significance. That phrase is in the Old Testament, referring to the nation as a whole and not every single individual who is a part of the nation. The phrase is uh, similar the, to those who we sometimes use to denote a large representative number from a group. This, that is, the whole school turned out to see the football game. The whole nation was outraged at the incident. So not every single particular Jew, but a huge bulk, a massive, huge majority, a representative size. So, yeah, this is not teaching that every single Jewish person throughout the ages are forever saved. It's not teaching that. It is teaching that at some point in the future, a majority of Jewish people will be saved. They'll come to Christ. They will receive Jesus Christ as their Messiah. 
So for the sake of summarizing all of this, we want to say here that Paul is teaching right here in Romans 11, the majority of the Gentiles will get saved. That will make Israel jealous, release their partial hardening. They will receive Jesus as Messiah. And in this way, Israel as a collective whole will be saved. They will receive Christ. And I think one of the things we can learn uh, from God's plan right now is that Romans 11, it paints a pretty bright future, a pretty optimistic future for the kingdom of God. I mean, more optimistic than we would think. I, see, I hear so many Christians you know, speak about the future of the kingdom of God in the most depressing, like the most pessimistic saddest ways imaginable. So, I mean, you know, so many Christians have gotten their views of the end times from the newspaper rather than getting it from the objective Word of God. And I hate to tell you, the news is tricking you guys. The news, you know the news does this. They intentionally, and by intentionally, they literally do this. They, they, they thoughtfully plan and strategize. I mean, you know, I mean, they know some people don't want to watch them, so they want people to watch the news. People are, they know statistically, people are attracted to negativity. People love, you know, that's why you drive on the freeway, someone gets an accident, you really can't look away. You always want to look at that curious side of you, right? People are attracted to negative stuff, and so the news knows this, and what does it put up? Surprise, surprise, the news puts up intentionally negative stuff, because they want you to read it, they want hits, because they get money, right? So we are attracted to negativity. That is the human disposition. That is the human predicament. I love the way that Roy F. Baumeister, a professor of social psychology of Florida State, puts it in his article in 2001, Bad is Stronger Than Good. You know this, but it's just good to hear an expert say it, you know? It is human nature. Bad emotion, bad parents, bad feedback have more impact than good ones. Bad impressions, bad stereotypes are quicker to form and more resistant to uh, disconfirmation than good ones. So, yeah, I mean, we are attracted to negative things because we are broken sinners. And broken sinners, naturally, I mean, with God's help, we can, you know, grow. But broken sinners, we assume the worst. We assume negativity. We don't assume the best. So, you know, watching the news perpetually every day is going to then perpetuate in your life a state of sadness and negativity. I, I, one of the, I get so many Christians in my life, so many people, I can't even tell you, it's so much. They get depressed and hurting because what they're doing is they're like, you know, doing their work, drinking their coffee, and the news is running in the background. You know, people that have the streamlined news as they're doing everything. The news is constantly going. It's just, it's just a constant thing. The TV's never off and it's going. It's like, how about we play negative things for you subconsciously, constantly? What do you think your thoughts are going to be? You think they're going to be like rainbows, unicorns? No, it's going to be a failure pile in a sadness bowl. That's what it's going to be. But you see, if you spend more time in God's Word than streamlining the news, then you're not going to be a Debbie Downer. If you spend your time in God's Word rather than hearing that stuff, because the thrust of God's Word is hope, positivity, and encouragement in the midst of difficulty. Even if you're, even if you're going through a hard time, you don't need to be full of despair, because God word, God's Word always in, inspires us to assume the best, and He's going to work all things out for final good. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says this, this is a Christian posture of love. Love bears all things, love believes all things, hopes all things endures all things. 
And when we have such good news in God's word that God is going to bring reconciliation to the world and all Israel is going to be saved, that's pretty amazing thing. That's, that's amazing. So we shouldn't have this, you know, apocalyptic Debbie Downer attitude you hear from many Christians, you know, it's just going to get less and less. And, you know, the kingdom of God is going to shrink down to almost nothing. And then bad stuff's going to happen and Jesus is going to come. No, I mean, it's the opposite. When you read the, the optimistic future that he outlines here, that Paul outlines here, Jesus confirms this, right? I mean, Jesus says, a whole authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is king, right? And he says, go out and preach the gospel now. That's what Jesus does to encourage us. You know, so this really matters because, let me ask you a question, okay? Say you got two basketball teams, right? They're equal in everything. They're equal in everything. Uh, talent, skill, players, they're just equal teams. The only difference is one team thinks they're going to lose really bad. The other team thinks they're going to win big time. What team are you going to bet on? The team that's going to win because that's what optimism does. It, it encourages us to go forward. It gives us a positive mindset. And so Jesus and Paul, very optimistic. Kingdom's going to grow and grow. Be larger than anything else. And we should have that optimism too. And if we're hopeful and we think we're going to win as a church, it's, we're going to, it says that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Like it says in Genesis there. I mean, people think of that as like, oh, the church has this gate and they, you know, Satan and his demons are kind of tearing down our gate and we're going to hold up finally to the end. No, it says the gates of hell, the gates belonging to hell. The gate in first century in the ancient culture was the last defensive measure that a kingdom had. And what Jesus tells us in Matthew 16 is that the Christian church will, will crack, destroy, and blow over. It'll storm the gates of hell. That sounds like winning to me. Big time, right? And so if you stop following the negative Eeyore media and you do some research, you'll find out Christianity is growing faster than the human population. This is according to Life, Lifeline, Seven Encouraging Trends of Global Christianity in 2022. It says, not only is religion growing overall, but Christianity specifically is growing with a 1.17% 1, 1. growth rate. Almost 2.56 billion people will, will identify as Christian by the middle of 2022. By 2050, the number will top to 3.33 billion. The places where Christianity is growing the fastest, it's not America, I hate to put it to you, right? So I, some of you are not surprised by that. Africa and Asia. Africa at 2.77% uh, of growth and Asia with a 1.50% rate. So let's just dispense of this Eeyore Sadness version of Christianity. You know, I just imagine Eeyore, right? No one's gonna be saved. Everybody's going to hell. It's just gonna get worse and worse. We'll be lucky if only a few people come to Christ. You know, but no, that's not how we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be full of hope and expectation that God is going to expand his glorious kingdom. Because when you expect great things from God, God, you will attempt great things from God. And that is exactly what the missionary William Carey believed. He had an optimistic view of God and what he's going to do. And so he attempted great things for God, even in the darkest, most difficult times. He was a, a missionary to India and he remained optimistic. His wife went clinically insane and died. His son his only son, when, when also, also died in India of, uh, of a sickness. 
So, I mean, his son and wife die, dies, and he's still laboring in India. He's still going strong. And you're like, well, he must have had a pretty terrific uh, ministry there in, uh, in India. Actually, he did, and he didn't have a single convert. And after years and years of suffering in his ministry, not a single convert in the entire seven years, finally... Uh, people started coming to faith in Christ after his wife and son had died. He just kept on going. You can't stop this guy. And now he is known to be the father of modern missions. He is known to be the one who brought the gospel to India and it expanded for Jesus Christ. He is the father of missions to India. And this is what he said because of his optimistic outlook. I'm a dreamer and continue to dream of what can and will be. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. And so that's what he did. He, brought, he had that mentality and through hardship, he didn't focus on his circumstances. He focused on the objectivity of God's word. And if we don't focus on our circumstances, but on God's truth, then we will also attempt great things for God. We will have passion for his word and passion to spread and grow his kingdom. And so if you've not received Christ this morning, I ask that you trust in and believe on him for the forgiveness of all your sins for eternal life. And he will save you and he will love you forever. And that is good news. That is good news worth dying for and giving everything we have for because that is a news that will help and heal a hurting and broken world. Let us pray for God's mercy in Christ.